see he Daniel actually ran out of the studio during that one. Good morning, Daniel Mumby. Good, good morning. It's nails on a blackboard for me. Yes. But I'm back at last. We've been me? threatening to uh, do that for weeks, haven't we? Yes, and now it's finally going yes. out of the top ten. I thought I may as well let you, but it's just I've forgotten just how, <laughs> how bad, bad it is. It is. Yeah. it is. Good morning. Truly awful. Good morning. And uh, uh, let's just get the rugby out of the way, by the way. Uh, no change in the score. It's still England 9, Scotland 12. Uh, Johnny's missed another penalty. Uh, good news is that uh, Johnny's off and Toby is on. Uh, good old Morpeth boy. So let's uh, see uh, if he can uh, turn it round. Right. We'll keep you up to uh, speed if anything else happens during the course of the next hour of interest. No problem. But we've got a few films to talk about, haven't we? Just a few. Shall we, uh, shall we do Annick Playhouse first? Yeah, I think we quick should. Quick run through that, and there's a lot going on up at Berwick to go through. Um, first of all, um, this evening at 7.30, it's Horrible Bosses, Certificate 15. Which isn't as funny as it needs to be, and I don't think that Jennifer Anson is convincing as an infomaniac. Right. On to Wednesday evening, Blutiful. Uh, is, you mean beautiful? Well, it says beautiful in here. Oh, right. Just... Well, in that case, I haven't heard of it. Oh. If it's beautiful, then it's a, it's a Spanish film, but I haven't heard of beautiful, so oh. I'll come right. to you on that. We shall do a bit of, um, research on that one. Yes. Uh, Thursday evening, The Guard. Which is, I, which is really, really great. It's, for me, this year's Scott Pilgrim, because it's a really great black comedy. Um, Brendan Gleeson on better form than he is in In Bruges. And no, it's not for the faint-hearted, because there are a lot of very awkward jokes in it, but if yeah. you, if you like Father Ted or Lethal Weapon, you're gonna love it. Right. Quick run through the maltings, uh, today and tomorrow, um, 2.30 this afternoon, 1 o'clock tomorrow, it is Spy Kids World. One for the family, I guess. Uh, that would be the 4D one, in which case it's rubbish. Ah. Uh, also today and tomorrow, and uh, today at 7 o'clock, Sunday at 3, it's Captain America. Which I think, you no, know, we both, I mean, you'd like the Captain America comics when you yes, were younger. Yes, indeed. I, I, think, I thought it was a pretty good balance of the inherently ridiculous story and sort of the knowingness of it. I mean, it's not... It's not up there with Flash Gordon, but it's perfectly enjoyable. Right, good. Um, Monday night, Half Price Monday, it is The Guard. Uh, we just rude that, yeah, but it we is have... really great. It's worth saying again. Yep. Uh, Tuesday, uh, I was about to say we'll come to it, but it's actually out of the uh, charts this week, isn't it? Um, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Which is your favourite film of the year yeah, so far. great film, great film, well worth going I to see. I have to say I missed the screening of it last night, so I might have to make a special right. trip. Two films on Wednesday. Uh, first of all, uh, at eight o'clock, The Skin I Live In. Which is a really good film, although, it, again, it's it's not for the faint-hearted. Pedro Amadovar getting right back on the form that he was, you know, 20 or so years ago. Great performance by Antonio Banderas, you know, it is essentially eyes without a face with more melodrama if that's possible but that's a very it's a very interesting film about gender politics with sort of horror movie trappings and an absolute classic at 8 30 brief encounter yeah now i was saying to you when we were preparing this i have a very love hate relationship with david lean i think you know his black his black and white work so you no know, great expectations uh, oliver twist brief encounter is very very good but then once you get to bridge on the river Kwai, he gets a bit jingoistic and a bit too drawn out um <laughs> But yeah, Brief Encounter is one of his best films. It's, you know, a classic story of an you know, unrequited love and you know, a microcosm of a man and a woman. It's, you know, it's, it's like all of David Lean's films, it's very well edited so that it's, you know, you take a, a situation which normally could only last for about 20, 30 minutes and you manage to pan it out for the best part of two hours and very good performances. And it made Comf Health Railway Station famous for all time. Of course. Uh, 
And then on Thursday night, Cowboys and Aliens. Which, no, it's, it's a film in which all the pleasure is in the title. I don't think it's... <laughs> <laughs> Lovely way of putting it. Yes, oh, no, it's... No, there is some pleasure in seeing, you know, Han Solo and James Bond teaming up, but after that, it, it does descend into just a lot of special effects set pieces. So, as empty-headed entertainment, fine. If you're wanting something more, go elsewhere. Box office numbers if you want to go see either of any of these films. Annick Playhouse is 01665 510785. The Maltings 01289 330999. On to the charts now. First of all, no Harry Potter, no Planet of the Apes. Summer's over, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think you know, we've had the last of the summer weather, certainly. Yeah. So, at number 10, The Change-Up. Which is utter rubbish. You know, this storyline of, you know, people switching bodies has been done to death. Jason Bateman and Ryan Reynolds are not funny enough to make it even passable. If you want to see this storyline, go and see either of the versions of Freaky Friday. Although, apparently, the version with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan is actually better than the original. At number 9, another one on its way out, The Smurfs. Yes. I, as I, we hoped. Yes, <laughs> I let you play the theme song, and please don't do it again if it's in next week. It's totally derivative, depressingly poor script, and I hope to God that there is isn't going to be a sequel. Yeah. Unlike the number eight, Jane Eyre. Which is really good. I mean, it's a much more restrained adaptation of the Charlotte Bronte novel, because that's a classic gothic novel, so there is a lot of ripe dialogue and sort of big, big emotional scenes of people wandering over moors and so forth, and I mean, that's no Emily Bronte. Um, but it's got a very washed-out colour palette. It's no understated, great central performances by Mia Vesikovska and Michael Fassbender. It's, it's very elegant, but not in the way of something like The Go-Between, in which it's all pretty and there's nothing underneath. I think it's a very good adaptation. I'm just a little bit surprised that they've gone for the understated route rather than the the flowing gothic sort of pre-Raphaelite look. Right. One that's not doing very well with the critics at number seven is Killer Elite. It's just totally disposable and unremarkable. I like Clive Owen and in this he's essentially doing a half-decent impression of Robert Shaw from the Taking of Pelham 123. I mean, it's not... It's not the full-out head-cracking fun that you want from a Jason Statham film, so if that's what you want, go and rent Blitz instead. Or go and see The Transporter 3, which is his best performance. Number six, Friends with Benefits. Which is all right. I mean, it's, you know, the premise is when Harry met Sally turn on its head, Justin Timberlake and Mila Kunis are passable as chemistry, but again, it is total disposable. Number five, going well with the critics' drive. Which is really good. I mean, Nick Winding Refn has made essentially an upmarket modern-day B-movie with an A-list no cast and A-list visuals. You know, it's an exploitation film with existentialism in there, like a lot of things like Vanishing Point and uh, uh, Tulane Blacktop from the 1970s. I mean, it looks back to Refn's original work, which was the Pusher trilogy, or I suppose the work of Charles Bronson. I think Ryan Gosling's very good, you know, and it's, it's not inherently remarkable because it does nod back very clearly to all those 70s works, but it is good fun. Number four, we'll move on quickly, The Inbetweeners. Which is, you know, clearly hit its target audience by taking bucket loads of money. I still think it's a bit derivative, but no, other opinions are available. See it's stayed in the charts forever, hasn't it? I know. No, maybe Lewis went to see it more than it's, once. I don't it feels know. like we were talking this back in April. Yes. <laughs> well, maybe we were. They were certainly talking about it. Number three is Warrior. Which is very entertaining, albeit in a trashy way. And like most of the Rocky, I mean, in terms of its comparison to Rocky, the first two Rocky films are pretty good because you have the first Rocky film in which he loses, then they have the second one in which he has to win, and there's another bit at the end where he goes, Yo, Adrian, I did it! And very good on the impressions this morning. You. Just yeah. had to stand a bit away around doing so We were thing. doing a Jeffrey Boycott during the news, but we won't go back to that one. No, it's not a good way to go. Um, so, but no, as with the Rocky films, by the time you get to the third one onwards, the, the device used to bring him out of retirement and get him back into the ring becomes more and more contrived. And the opening section of Warrior does involve you know, setting up the characters and how they're going to get into the ring, and it's very cliched and very contrived, but 
once they get into the ring and start beating each other up to the pulp for about 20 or 30 minutes, it is enjoyable. No, there is some innate pleasure in seeing Tom Hardy with his shirt off wrestling a guy to the floor. Indeed. Uh, number two. If you're uh, so inclined. Crazy Stupid Love. Which is not as funny as it needs to be. It desperately wants to be an American version of Love, actually, but it doesn't have the charm or the quality of writing, because, you know, Richard Curtis may be something of a, a shambolic director, but he is a very good writer. Um, there's not enough for Julianne Moore to do. It's, it's okay, but it's totally in one ear and out the other. And then at number one, again, and probably one of your favourites of the year, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. It is one of my favourites of the year because it's really, really great. It's the most atmospheric thriller that I've seen for an awfully long time. You get a real sense of the world which Alfredson creates is something which is you know, just ingrained with malaise and falling apart. Gary Oldman is terrific. Like I said last week, the only quibble I have is with the amount of compression that they've had to do because if if you remember the tv series there are whole sections in the tv series which go on for sort of 20 or 30 minutes which only get about five yeah. or ten in the film which is a no a quite ordinary complaint to make i suppose that if you haven't seen the tv series or read the book because i haven't read the john le Carre novel either then that might not be such of a problem with you i do need to go and see it again to make up my mind but it is one of the year's best one so, of the year's best i should say Recommendations this week, obviously that one. What yeah. else? Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, um, Jane Eyre, and uh, Warrior. If you want to have fun and so, drive, so, so some quite good things in the charts. This it is week. pretty good, to be honest. I mean, certainly it's a lot more inspiring than what's coming out this week. Right. Finally, England have scored a try. Huzzah! Yes, England sixteen, Scotland twelve. Has it been converted? It was converted. Yes. Right. Yes. Let's have some decent music, shall we? Okay. And this has a cracking video, and if you've never seen the video, go onto YouTube, do a search on the Tuckers. From the heart of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Tuckers and Gabriel, I should say a very good morning to all of my friends from Newcastle University who promised to tune in today. And we were having a little chat last night at our uh, leaving do about uh, today's cult classic, because most of them are of an age where they can remember it, uh, and uh, Logan's Run. Uh, one of uh, many of our favourite films of all time, so be very careful, Daniel. I will. And uh, to be honest, anything with Jenny Agutirin would have to be good. Generally, as a general rule, that is good, because obviously Railway Children and American Werewolf, yes. which we talked about before. Yes. So, I mean, because this is one of your favourite yes. films, I think it's only fair that I should let you sort of, well, set it up by talking why, you know, give me the pitch, why is it your favourite? Um, I mean, I, I think uh, Michael York and Jenny Agatha are really good in it together. Um, it's... It was an interesting concept at the time of, uh, you know, this enforced euthanasia when you got to whatever age, was it 35, 30, 30 yeah. uh, because the, um, the system couldn't support you in this world run on a benign basis by uh, a big brother type uh, character, but without the, the sinister underfeeling that you got through um, 1984. Um, but ended with a really sort of positive, upbeat message that, um, you know, the, the world was okay after all. Yeah. You've just got to embrace th uh, change. Okay. Um, and lots of sweet bits in between the, um, the old man in, um, was House it, Congress, of House yeah. of Representatives. We'll come on to that. And, uh, and just a lovely feel-good feel. And, uh, I used to quite like sort of lightish science fiction and it was sort of of that genre, I guess. Um, 
and then there's Incredible Jumpers, which we will come back to, no yes, doubt. Yes, we will. So, a great film. I love it. It's, we were trying to work out, I don't think I ever saw it on the big screen when it first came out, because I was still living in Litchfield at the time, and our cinema had gone its way to become a bingo hall, uh, and it was a long way to go to out. Sanctuary. Go, gone Yeah, indeed. Um, it, it was a long way to get to a cinema, so it had to be a bit of a blockbuster to, uh, to justify uh, going to see it, uh, and I don't think this would have hit it, but I'm sure I must have seen it at university. And it's been on television at least ten times since. It's one of those staple fairs, isn't it, when they've got a schedule to fill. Yeah. And I always make the time to find, to Great. watch it. Okay, so um, we should probably set it up for people who don't entirely know what we're talking about. Um, Logan's Run is a 1976 sci-fi camp classic based very, very, very loosely on a novel by uh, William F. Nolan and George Clayton Johnson, which we'll come to in a second. Uh, won the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film in 1976, so it, it got a little bit of recognition. I think it was also Oscar-nominated for its visual effects or maybe its cinematography, so it's unusual that a cult film should get that kind of recognition, but no, for reasons that will become clear. Directed by Michael Anderson, who is most famous for directing The Dambusters, which is you know, widely considered to be one of the best, if not the best, films about World War II. I mean, it's... I really like it. There are things... There are certain things about it now which don't hold up well, like the name of the dog, which we can't say on air for rather obvious reasons, and I think that when they come to remake it, because Peter Jackson's working on it with Stephen Fry, they're going to change the name of that simply because you, you can't justify it. Um, do you remember the, um, the Carling Black Label adverts that used to parody the Dambusters? In which it was um, yes. flying towards it, and then instead of the bombs hitting the dam, you have a, a guy playing the goalkeeper and sort of saving them, and then yeah. like, I bet he drinks you know, that yeah. certain kind of beer. So he made that. He also won the Best Picture Oscar for Around the World in 80 Days, three years after that, so, and that contains what is many ways the defining David Niven performance of, you know, suave, slightly caddish, resourceful, and always perfectly dressed. And there was that great John Mortimer quote about David Niven, which is, I don't think his acting ever quite achieved the brilliance or, or the polish of his dinner party conversations. Now, I like David Niven a lot. So Anderson was a very good, if old-fashioned, director who specialised in, you know, kind of what you said, sort of light-hearted, uplifting, family-friendly entertainment, and he could turn his hands to pretty much any genre he wanted. Logan's Run is an interesting choice for the cult film, partly because it got awards attention, but also because it did take money the first time round. It did indeed. It I was cost, just looking at the results. Yes. Yeah, it cost about nine million dollars to make, which is a, the same as the first Star Wars film, and it took about three to four times that at the yeah. box office first yes, time round. Yes, some pretty spectacular sets. Yes, it was. Um, the thing is, though, that no. So it was quite famous in its day, but then when Star Wars came along the following year and effectively changed the goalpost for what a science fiction or a space fantasy film should look like, Logan's Run instantly started to look a little bit sort of old-fashioned and a bit more, no, not, not to put too fine upon it, a bit naff. Came, for me, a bit quirkier and a bit more fun as a result. Yeah, no, I, I yes. don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but from the point of view yes. of people who wanted to emulate the look of Star Wars, it was the old-school approach yes. and it was seen as quite outdated. Yes. So. So was it progress moving from dodgy jumpers to wearing dressing gowns? <laughs> I never thought of it in that way, but yes, I suppose it was. So you get a situation whereby, you know, a film takes a, a quite a bit of money the first time round, then completely disappears off the radar to the point at which you couldn't get it on video until the 1990s. You know, you could sort of, they'd sold the television rights, so like you say, it would turn up frequently, probably on a Saturday or a Sunday night when, you know, the family were all in. And... No, it's only recently that Logan's Run has been, you know, properly embraced as a bona fide cult effort rather than just this minor little film that only the devoted fans talk about. Yeah. So the, the plot is, it's set in the 23rd century where most of the Earth's surface has been destroyed, or maybe it hasn't, by some uh, 
a great apocalyptic disaster. The survivors are living in a vast domed city where everyone lives for total pleasure. There's no real concept of work. It's acceptable to have multiple very promiscuous sexual partners. Plastic surgery is readily available and it's almost encouraged. They talk about sort of, you know, I'm going to have a new face done. I say, oh, fantastic. That's going to suit you really well. The only catch is that no one in this civilization is allowed to live over the age of 30. Everyone has a life clock embedded in their right palm, which is this little, this little jewel, which is green when you start, and then it gets redder as you go older, and then when it kind of goes black, your time's up. And people either have to submit themselves to carousel, which is this strange ceremony where they sort of float up to the ceiling and burst into flames and say, oh, they've been renewed, which means they're going to come back in another incarnation. Or if they don't want to do that, they go on the run and are hunted down by the Sandmen, which are like the sort of the special patrol force with laser guns. Uh, so were you going to say something? No, no, you carry on. So, um, Michael York, who to younger audiences will be better known as Basil Exposition from the Austin Powers films, um, he is a Sandman called Logan Five, whose job is to go hunting down these runners. And he develops a relationship with Jessica Six, played by every teenage boy's dream, Jenny Agatha, uh, who, you know, resists his advances and he notices that she, he's got a strange sort of, it's an unk symbol around her neck, which is, you know, it's an, like an Egyptian cross with a circle on the top. And he's told by the the uh, city's computer that Jessica is believed to have links to this society of runners who are trying to get to a place called Sanctuary, this mythical area maybe outside the city walls which is sort of depicted as being heaven and he's given a mission to infiltrate the runners he has his life clock altered and he goes on the run hence Logan's run. Yeah. Ever since the first, the original series of Star Trek, it's almost been fashionable to dismiss science fiction as nothing more than enjoyable pantomime hogwash. I mean, whatever the original Star Trek series tried to do in terms of raising ideas about no racism and no classes of civilizations and political struggle, more often than not, the ideas would take a back seat to very hammy acting, lots of silly fighting with slightly out-of-sync sound effects, and increasingly bizarre costumes. And, and dodgy sets. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, no, you look at the, sort of the brine nylon jumpers that you get in, in, in no, the early Star Trek series, and I mean, you have to wonder why William Shatner put up with any yeah. of that And stuff. the jackboots they used to wear. Yes, they saw the ones that sort of came up halfway up the shin and then just, for some reason, stopped. Yes. <laughs> yes, I sort of army hand-me-downs. So Logan's run, so from my point of view, is very much a kindred spirit to the original Star Trek, because it's campy, it's silly, and from one point of view it's utterly escapist, but it is passingly entertaining. The initial disappointment with Logan's run for me is just how little of the original novel survives in the screenplay, because the novel, which was written in the late 1960s, I think 68, used the sort of the counterculture and the youth movements of the day uh, as a platform for a story essentially about eugenics, because you, it takes, you know, the idea that only certain, no, the eugenic idea that certain kinds of people are superior, but instead yeah. of doing it on a racial lines, it's saying, you know, anyone over the age of 21 is obsolete and has, can have no place in society. So it was taking the idea of the youth are going to take over the world and applying that in a different context with sort of science fiction trappings and doing a very interesting job of it. But in the screenplay of Logan's Run, which was written by uh, David Zeller Goodman, who wrote the screenplay for Straw Dogs, and who actually died this week, I think, mm. um, this fascinating sort of multi-layered sociopolitical premise is compressed into a rather generic action-adventure story with most of the political undercurrents taken out. And you can sort of, you can read into it as being sort of Hollywood, you know, reducing everything down to an absurdly simple idea. I don't think it's entirely true, but... From my point of view, someone who comes from the, the darker, more sort of cerebral end of science fiction, not that Logan's Run isn't cerebral in certain areas, there is an initial disappointment of, you know, maybe we're not watching the film that we should have got if the novel's that good. 
Uh, the remaining premise of Logan's Run is still interesting. You know, the idea that people can only live to 30 because they are, before they are elaborately executed. But like I say, it is much more old-fashioned. And Michael Anderson was one of these directors who, when he was working in the 50s, doing things like the Dam Busters, like Around the World in 80 Days, he was very much in his prime. But one, what happened was that he kept making the same kind of film long after it had stopped being you know, fashionable. And to give you an example of that, in 1964, he made a film called Operation Crossbow, which was a World War II drama in which he was very clearly trying to recapture the look and the feel and the mood of the Dam Busters. And it took money when first released, yeah. but it has never been released on video or DVD, simply because it was sort of in one ear and out the other. It's like, oh, yes, it's, it's instantly old-fashioned. Bear in mind, of course, this was the year of Doctor Strangelove, which again shifted the goalpost of what a war drama should be like, or a war comedy in that case. And Anderson ended up being one of these directors who MGM had it. They had a sort of stock pool of workmanlike directors, so they just said, um, we need a science fiction film. Yeah, give it to Michael. He's reliable. He can you know, bring some money in. We know his films are going to take money. Who cares if they're any good? But in this case, it is good. So... He approaches Logan's run like all the, his classic work in which, you know, it's a star vehicle. No, it's, it's a film with Michael York and Jenny Agatha. We're going to have a lot of locations. There's going to be lots of fun patch acts with people running around in, you no, know, not very much, getting to hit each other. And all the sort of the darker, more political stuff, the sinister undercurrents of the Jules Verne novel around the world in 80 days, we'll just sort of, we'll sweep them under the carpet and sort of forget they're there because it's a family film. And I think it's in its most recent classification, it's a 12 certificate. Logan's run, even though there, you know, some there is a little bit of nudity in there, but that's about the only thing that's questionable. In terms of its positioning within the science fiction canon, there are a number of things to which Logan's run either owes a debt or very clearly references. I mean, the the premise of a totalitarian society based around hedonism. I mean, you mentioned 1984 when we kind of were setting it up, but the actual thing that it's closest to is Brave New World, the Aldous Huxley novel, which you know argues that essentially in the future people will give up their intelligence and their political freedoms for the sake of having fun all the time. And no, I mean, if you haven't read Brave New World, it is a masterpiece, so go and read it, because, you know, it, amongst other things, it predicted antidepressants and test tube babies. And they have these strange, you know, in many ways, it was also the forerunner of interactive media because of the feelies, where these cinemas where you'd sort of go in and experience pseudo-pornographic films and you could actually feel what was going on on the screen as well as yeah. seeing and hearing it. So, you know, it, you know there's, there's a link in there with 3D somewhere. Um, you've also got things like the time. I mean, the carousel sequence is like the funeral scene in Silent Green where Edward G. Robinson is imagining all these yeah. meadows, imagining he's going to be renewed when, in fact, we know what's going to happen to him. And in its general campy tone, there are hints of Planet of the Apes, particularly the sequels to Planet of the Apes, which the, late, the later Planet of the Apes films did become more comedic and light-hearted and sort of lose yeah. whatever grittiness the original had, although the original's not massively gritty, certainly not by modern standards. But the thing that's in the back of all of this for me is The Time Machine, the 1960 version of the H.G. Wells novel directed by George Powell, who produced The War of the Worlds. Yeah. And you could almost argue that the whole of Logan's run is like the final act of um, The Time Machine when he goes to... Um, goes to the future, the far future, and meets the Eloy and falls in love with one of them. And it's the idea of this society which is sort of docile and hedonistic to the point of ignorance being held secretly captive by, by evil forces. Now, in the case of the Time Machine, it's the Morlocks who live under the ground. And in the case of uh, Logan's Run, it's time itself, because they've placed artificial limits on how long you can live because they don't want overpopulation. Yeah. What fascinates me, and it's... Um probably getting more out of the film than there should be, is uh, how on earth you got to a state where a society gave up its right to self-determination and let a machine run itself. I mean, this is not like, you know, your classic uh, aliens with ten ears coming in and 
conquering all or even planet of the apes which we now know is a uh, mutation from human yeah. exp human experimentation yes yeah some bunch of humans at some stage in their life decided uh, the only way of they force of survival was to let the computer take over and just sort of give up well i think you know, the, to link it back to huxley the point that huxley made was that that decision is is not something that's sort of it's not an instantaneous decision. It's something that happens as over the many periods of time as a result of technology making it easier for humans to exist. Therefore, they become lazy. Yeah. Therefore, they don't feel the need to sort of you know, walk for themselves anymore in some cases. I mean, you can sort of see hints of that in Wally when you have you know people living up in space, floating around and being clinically obese because all their muscles are withered away. Yeah. So. I think the point to answer your question is that it, this, you know, the fact that it's set in the 23rd century, this wouldn't have been someone coming in and saying, right, overnight, um, we've had a fantastic idea, you're all going to be killed at 30, who's with me? It's something that would have happened gradually to combat the ideas of overpopulation yeah. and how are we going to feed everyone and that sort of thing, and then supposedly this disaster happened. So I don't think you need, I think it's a valid point, but in terms of understanding Logan's run, I don't think you need to worry too much about it. So in terms, like I say, to come back to the comparison with the time machine, it's very clear that, you no. Know, um, Michael Anderson is a fan of the George Powell film and is trying to, because you know, you remember in the section of the Time Machine where although it's a science fiction film which has got quite dark creepy stuff in it, it's yeah. a used certificate and the colour palette is very very bright, even when you go into the Morlocks cave when it's sort of, yeah. you know, match light and these strange gorilla-like beings being sort of, you no, know, it's got a very sort of rosy colour palette. Yeah. But in terms of the way that Logan's run looks, it's much less George Powell than Jerry Anderson because, you know, you, the wide shots do look an awful lot like the monorail sequences in Thunderbirds or yeah, Stingley. true, yes. And yeah. the costumes, I mean, for me, they're closest to Space 1999, which would have been around the same time that Logan's run was being yes. made. So. Yeah, actually, very similar. Yes, yeah. just no, equally, people in jumpers on the moon. Yes. yes. Yeah, no, Space 1999... It was jump, jumpsuits more than jumpers, but yes, yeah, that's yeah, a good point. Just, no, yes. knitted them a little bit too long and thought, well, we'll put some trousers on it. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, it's like, I like Space 1999 enough, but it is a bit cheesy. So it's clearly a product of its time in the sense that, well, I mean, you only have to look at the costumes to realise that, and the, the fact that the men get to walk around in sort of jumpers and full-length jumpsuits, while the women have to walk around in increasingly non-existent skirts, which, of course, you can trace back to Star Trek, you know, the boys <laughs> swooning over Uhura with that tiny little dress. Yes. And the first time we see Jenny Agatha, we kind of, she kind comes in and there's a profile shot in which she appears to be not wearing any underwear and then in, on less than two separate occasions that's confirmed in a full frontal shot. Thanks, we didn't really need to know that, but okay. And um, despite having the same budget of Star Wars, a lot of Logan's Run does look like it was made on the cheap to the extent that the 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 main sort of complex area of the city where the carousel happens does look like it was a shopping mall because it probably was <laughs> it, 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 yeah. you know sometimes when you're making a film very very quickly so that you've only got a location for a certain amount of time there's a thing called set dressing where you sort of put little props and yeah. little bits of lighting in it i mean I'm, I'm reminded of a story about when carpenter john carpenter made escape from new york they had to effectively sneak onto streets at two or three o'clock in the morning, dump loads of metal on, get two hours worth of shooting, and then clear off before everything opened yeah. up at six o'clock. So it looks like it. They wasn't. They didn't have the chance to sort of dress everything up and make it yeah. look like it. And as a result, it does look like a shopping mall. The film, for the most part, and I don't mean this necessarily in a bad way, it is very silly, because you do forget very quickly that Logan is infiltrating the runners, you forget that he's a government puppet who's supposed to be sort of you know, the mole inside all this, and after he does defeat Francis, who's the guy pursuing both Logan and Jessica, it does descend into a sort of series of elaborate set pieces, not very well executed, you know, reminded me a little bit of the Poseidon adventure where they're sort of swimming underwater yeah. and jumping off massive you know, cliffs and so forth, but there are little pockets of creepiness in the film, um, the one that surprised me most was their encounter with Box 
which you must remember. Oh, yes, you know, yes. Where, no, they're in this sort of ice cave, and they've you know, taken yes. off their clothes and put on these sort of, um, these fur coats, and then this sort of, this character called Box something who looks like a sort of bargain basement Dalek, and he starts spouting off about uh, plankton and sea greens, and you think, okay, where's this going? You think, yeah, fine, it's quite lighthearted, and then he leads them into this icy corridor where there are people frozen in ice. Yes. And it's it implying... creepy, yes. Yeah, and it, no, it's, it's like we have wandered into soil and green, because it's, you no, know, these people were runners, and now the food supplies run out, so are we eating them and then yeah. no the, the birds sort of fall on him and you know, it's it's a little creepy interlude which which sort of has bits of what the novel had in it this in terms of the performances i think that no my michael york and jenny agatha do a pretty good job i mean in, t in jenny agatha's case it is essentially a rather duff role because for the early part of the film she doesn't have much more to do beyond walking around open mouth and taking her clothes off but she does eventually make something out of yeah. it now michael york you know he's got a very good voice and you know, has a sort of strange warped screen presence so i mean if you like him in ba as battle exposition then you're going to like him in this outside of that it is a little bit wooden and you know it's it's not up there with sort of Charlton Heston or William Shatner levels of hamminess, but it is quite <laughs> hammy. So, in spite of all those little problems that I have with it, and there is a lot of, an awful lot of little problems, it does eventually emerge as an enjoyable slice of science fiction. I mean, the irony of the film is that once we stop trying to take it seriously and saying, no, why isn't that more political? Why isn't yep. that sort of more interesting? That's the thing. Once we stop taking it seriously, the film does get off the ground and actually says the things that it wants to say. And while the, while the later sections of the film are still a little bit absurd, it does make up for the loose, baggy opening act, and it does raise a couple of you know, main things around the, uh, the central theme. For me, the, the big difference in the film is when Sir Peter Ustinov comes on screen. And Gene yes. Siskel, who, you uh, know, of Siskel and Ebert, once said that the film was the worst he'd ever seen. And the reasoning he gave was that Ustinov's cameo was extended unduly because he was deemed to be the only interesting thing in it. There are very few people who would agree with Siskel's view, you know, out of yeah. Siskel and Ebert, he's the weaker yeah. of the two. But his performance is by far and away the it's best great. in the film. Absolutely I mean, brilliant. Because, yeah. you know, he plays a senile old man who is found by Logan and Jessica wandering around the ruins of the House of Representatives, so a further reference yes. to Planet of the Apes. Now, if you remember the remake of Planet of the Apes, where it's not the, it's not the Statue of Liberty, it's the Lincoln yeah. Memorial, which they find, which is the thing that yes. prompts them to realise the twist. And it never states exactly why he's there. I mean, it could be like um, J.F. Sebastian in Blade Runner, where he's simply too old to have been accepted into the community and was left outside to die. But Peter Ustinov has that thing, a bit like Richard Burton, whereby... His screen presence is such that you could give him the most ridiculous or stupid line and he would deliver it in such a way which gave it heft, which gave it like, actually, I really like this guy and I'm going to take him seriously. So even while he's rambling on about cats having three different names and the third one he'll never tell you, yes. you know, stuff on paper which is just total hogwash, you actually buy into it because, you know, the mannerisms are more convincing and the fact that he's sort of dithering and shambling around makes sense because of the fact that Logan and Jessica have no experience of what age is. You know, I think the yeah. first time they meet him, Jessica says, is there something wrong with your face? Because she hasn't, yeah. she's got no idea of what wrinkles are. Um, I think it's a good, good portrayal of how somebody might be if they've not seen another human being for 30 or 40 years. Exactly. And it's, um, yeah, you must go slightly bonkers exactly no but again it's the idea of he has presence and that's something which yeah. a lot of the supporting cast don't have in terms of the ending you could argue that there is a very sort of 
there is biblical imagery in the ending. I mean, yeah. certainly, after you could, there have been people who have likened Logan and Jessica's escape from the Dome City as like Adam and Eve being banished from the Garden of Eden, but in a sort of twist because it actually turns out that Eden is actually the thing that's outside yes. the wall, so it's yes. a slight subversion of that. Yeah. And certainly, if, you know, if you read it in a certain way, Ustinov is, you know, because he's dithering and nervous, it's like, you know, when people escape from the city at the end, it's like Moses leading the people out of Egypt into the, well, yeah. well what could be was, the yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that sort of thing is that. I don't think you necessarily have to read into it, but it's there if you want to see it. The film is also quite prophetic in the increased social role for cosmetic surgery. And in an age when you know, breast implants and tummy tucks and facelifts have become both cheap and fashionable, it isn't all that far-fetched to think that at you know, some point in the near future you could get a whole new appearance just through a sort of quick yes. flicks of the laser. And you, know, you get uh, one sequence where you know, Michael Anderson is going in to get in, so where um, Michael York is going in to get a new face, and you know the Doctor, who's played by the director's son, Michael Anderson Jr., is and they end up sort of fighting and the lasers yeah. are crisscrossing, which is like you know you take the laser joke in Goldfinger and you think, well, let's play this to the kind of the maximum conclusion yeah. we can get, where instead of just one laser going up between Sean Connery's legs, it's a dozen lasers flinging all over <laughs> the place and people are getting sort of scorched and so forth. So. To sum up, there is a lot about the film which, you know, if you were incredibly cynical, much more cynical than me, you would just dismiss it outright because it has dated, its ideas are compromised by the generic action story and it is preposterous. But it does pass muster in the end as a consistently entertaining science fiction film which does manage to get a grip on its issues. It succeeds where so many of the Star Trek films fail because it doesn't take itself so seriously that it just gets ponderous and so slow. And you, I mean, particularly the first Star Trek film by Robert Wise in which you just think... Can we just launch the Enterprise already? Because I am dying of boredom. So it's not up there with Flash Gordon, but it does pass the time very nicely. And you no, know, as late night sci silly sci-fi on TV, it's second to none. Great film, and Michael York for me will always be D'Artagnan. This is the fresh sound for the district, live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Uh, too long since we've had kinks on the show and Waterloo Sunset. And it's horror month now. Yeah, because we've got four more shows in October. We thought we would uh, do have a lot of horror movies in the lead up to Halloween. So next week we will do Wakewood, which is a recent uh, offering from the newborn Hammer. The week after that we'll do John Carpenter's The Fog. Then we'll do uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein's Teeth. And then finishing up on the 29th with Carrie. And I'll be leaving you and Paul Young to do that one yeah. in your pre-Halloween show. Shall we have a look at the new releases then? Yeah, we need to count. I suspect uh, the Turkey of the Week's going to be Abduction, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, well, well, we'll see. New film starring Taylor Lautner, which is the, you know, the buff one out of Twilight, uh, directed by John Singleton, who started out pretty good because he made things like Boys in the Hood, but he has been going downhill ever since. His last film was Four Brothers, which was, you know, all over the place. The story is that Taylor Lautner has been brought up by Jason Isaacs and Maria Bello. Jason Isaacs, of course, being, you know, Harry Potter. Uh, he's, you know, has lots of pent-up rage in him, which he takes up by wrestling with his shirt off, much like he does in the Twilight films, only without the wrestling, and he finds a missing persons ad with his picture in and finds out that he may have been abducted all along, at which point his house blows up and he has to go on the run. It's clearly been made to capitalise on the success of Twilight, where, like I say, Lautner was essentially being paid to walk around with his shirt off, and there's actually a line in Twilight's Eclipse in which Robert Pattinson says, doesn't he actually have a shirt? Because he spends so much time with it off. I mean, I'm agnostic about Twilight, but if he has acting chops, they're not on show here. It's a very derivative storyline. It sort of ties in with Hannah this year and the, the Bourne series before that. 
it's not very well directed. I think it will be fine for the younger children who like Twilight, but otherwise very dull and hopelessly unoriginal. A lovely quote here. A soulless and incompetent action thriller not even a veteran lead actor could save, let alone Taylor Lautner. Yeah, I wouldn't go quite so far, but, um, yeah, a lot of the viewers have been very, very negative. Yes. Yeah, another one that's uh, not been doing desperately well, the critics, is... Um, Shark Knight 3D. Yeah, we'll canter through this Just quickly. 3D probably gives it away, doesn't it? Perhaps, yeah. I mean, new film from David R. Ellis, who made uh, the second and fifth of the Final Destination films, also made Snakes on a Plane. Story, like a million times before, there's a bunch of actors, you know, of whom you can't name any of them because they're not very famous. They're not wearing very much. They go swimming in a saltwater lake. One of them loses his arm. Guess what? It's a shark and they have to run away. Um, quite so, apart from the Jaws again. Yeah, I mean, quite apart from the fact that it's totally unremarkable and in 3D, which is pointless, and it's very poorly shot, it's a 12-certificate film. Now, if you're going to do a film about sharks killing people, either go the way of Jaws and don't show anything, because the thing about Jaws is that, no, although it's about a killer shark, it's just the unbearable tension that you get yeah. from just seeing little bits and pieces. Either do that, or go the way of all the Italian knockoffs of Jaws, which showed absolutely everything, because at least if it was no 18-certificate and really gross, it would be memorably gross, whereas this is just a cash cow, and it will be completely unmemorable. Right, next one, An Anna Faris in What's Your Number? Okay, um, new film by Mark Mylod, who again doesn't have a great pedigree because he previously directed Ali G in the house which <sighs> doesn't get us uh, off to a good start no does it? it doesn't um so Anna Faris is a young woman who has been in relationships with about 20 men over her lifetime and she reads in a magazine article that if you have had that many partners it means that you'll never settle down so she has to go back through all her past boyfriends to see if any of them are marriage material whilst trying to avoid the advances of the Lothario across the hallway who's played by Chris Evans out of Captain America um, it's a nice central idea, you know, it's taking the issue of, you know, how is it that men can have so many sexual partners and uh, that's good for them, whereas if a woman does the same, she's disreputable, just kind of, you know, put it yeah. lightly. Um, it was a similar, they, there was a film not so long ago called Easy A with Emma Stone in, which, which took the similar sort of ideas of, you know, high school promiscuity. It's not as funny or subversive as it needs to be, but there are, you know, some laughs in it, and Anna Faris has very good comic timing. What I would say is, if you want a good Anna Faris comedy, go and rent Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which is, you no. Know, if David Lynch did a kid's film, that's what it would be like. Right, quote here. Comic timing of Anna Faris is sharp as always, but wasted away in this pretty Predictable boilerplate comedy. Yeah, because you know, as soon as you see Chris Evans on the screen, you know that he's the guy she's going to end up with. That's not a spoiler, that's how all these films work. Yeah. So shall we try for something a bit better now, The Debt? The Debt. Okay, this is Film of the Week. New film by John Madden, who is most famous for directing Shakespeare in Love. Where do you stand on Shakespeare in Love? Uh, it's okay. Yeah, I think that's the consensus of everyone. There's a lot of hate for it out there because of yeah. the fact that it's... I don't love it, but I didn't hate it either. No, so. it, no, because of the fact that it took so many Oscars and, of course, you know, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. speech. There was a wonderful... Um, do you remember 2D TV? which was this sort of cartoon no, satirical no. series in which they had um, the Oscar ceremonies and as people were filing in, there was a life raft on the wall with a sign singing Case of Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> so I thought that was quite good. So, you know, it gets a lot of hate for its undeserved Oscar success, but it's perfectly fine. John Madden also directed the radio adaptations of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back to tie it into the whole yeah. Logan's Run thing. So it's a remake of an Israeli film called Hachov, uh, co-scripted and co-produced by uh, Matthew Vaughan, who did Kick-Ass not so long ago. And the story starts off in 1997, when a book is being published about three Mossad agents, Mossad be being the Israeli Secret Service, and one of the agents is played by Helen Mirren, 
who uh, supposedly captured a Nazi war criminal back in the 1960s and it's you know, celebrating their work. The film then cuts between that and the actual action in 1966 where the agents are planning, are trying to bring in this Nazi war criminal who is the doctor of Birkenhaus. So little hints of the boys from yeah. Brazil, but not quite in a silly way. And the idea is to bring him over to their side of the Berlin Wall, but it all goes pear-shaped and suffice to say, without giving too much away, the present day version of events may not be the whole truth. Ooh. Yeah, so it's interesting that this is coming out so soon after Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, although apparently this was delayed for a couple of years because of the production company going into administration and yeah. the distributors bickering, so it's an older film. And there are hints of the classic Cold War dramas in there. I mean, you can link it to, I suppose, Smiley's People, the sequel to Tinker Tailor, because that ends with someone kind of trying to sneak over the bridge over the Berlin Wall so that, no, I think it's Carla isn't it, who has to surrender, mm -hmm. and there's that sequence of, you know, in surrendering, Smiley has become like Carla, and it's, you know, it's a period yeah. of victory. There are also little touches of things like um, Steven Spielberg's Munich, which is not one of his stronger films, but no, which was about the 1972 Olympics, and there's a little fallout between the Israeli and the Palestinian communities. It was a very even-handed thriller, but it was even-handed to the point of being a little bit boring. So it's a very well-handled, you know, solidly murky thriller which raises all the right kinds of political questions. The storyline isn't all that original, but like I say, it's pretty gripping, and John Madden does a pretty good job with slightly well-worn material. Right. Talking about well-worn material, next one we've got is Red State, and reading the trailer of this, it feels very formulaic. How so? It's sort of classic, you know, small-town, fundamentalist preacher, three high school boys, something goes wrong. Okay, yeah. Sounds, sounds a bit formulaic to yeah, me. Yeah, deliverance. Yeah, so... <laughs> So, a new film by Kevin Smith, who started out his career quite well because he made Clerks and uh, Chasing Amy and Dogma, which is the one with um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon as Fallen Angels and uh, God being played by Alanis Morissette, and it mm. stirred up a lot of uh, ruckus in the Catholic Church, but it's actually quite funny. Um, since then, however, he has gone a bit downhill because he made Jersey Girl, and, and yeah. which was incredibly mawkish, and Coppa, which was just bland. Um, so, the story is that there are three bro blokes who, uh, want to, uh, who want to score, so we're already into sort of American pie porky's territory uh, they answer an internet ad to hook up with some girls in another state and they go over the state border where they are met but met by melissa leo who uh, won an oscar for the fighter uh, earlier this year and the most famous thing about that was that she swore quite openly when she won her award and they, they didn't pick yeah. it up in the four second delay so they get drunk with her and they wake up in cages to discover that they are prisoners of a fundamentalist cult and uh, who are sort of going, who are sort of complaining about how promiscuous American society has become, and it's implied that they're going to be sacrificed or at yeah. least you know, tortured. And then the FBI turn up, and it turns into a siege film where you know they're John Goodman's the FBI agent outside the church, telling them to come out with their hands up, and they're inside, and all hell's yeah. going to break loose. It's the best thing that Kevin Smith has done in ages and ages. I mean. <laughs> He did drift very much into mawkishness with Jersey Girl, and then his subsequent films, um, Clerks 2 and Zack and Mary Make a Porno, it was very much like, I want to recapture the younger self, but I want to be incredibly mawkish as well, and it never yeah. quite worked. And it's uneven, and it is ramshackle in the sense that, no, it's, it's three different films going on at once, because you've got the American Pie stuff, then you've got the fundamentalist stuff, which is a bit like Deliverance, and then you've got the Siege stuff, which is a little bit like the opening of The Fugitive. And... But the fact that all the little faults with it are somehow the things that make it more endearing, and it, it does try to raise a number of ideas about fundamentalism, and it should be applauded for at least raising these issues. And it's good to see Kevin Smith returning to his independently spirited roots and sort of rejecting all the sponsorship money yeah. that Cop Out would have got him. So it's not flawless by any means, but it's the best thing Kevin Smith has done in about ten years. Oh, right, so you like it. Yes. Right. And finally, this looks a cracking one, actually. Um, Melancholia. 
New film by Lars von Trier, who is a controversial Danish filmmaker. Um, he was famously thrown out of the Cannes Film Festival this year for saying, as a joke, that he was a little bit of a Nazi. Oh, I remember that. Yes. yes. Um, he's a very up-and-down director. On the one hand, he made um, Dogville and Mandalay, which were films about, um, you know, slaves enslaving themselves in America, which had you know, Bram, Nicole Kidman and Bryce Dallas Howard. On the other hand, he made The Idiots, which was, uh, you know, a film about people pretending to be disabled, which just descended yeah. into softcore stuff. And most worst First of all, he made a film called Breaking the Waves, in which you know Emily Watson marries into this strict Calvinist community. Her husband loses his ability to walk after an accident and basically says, I want you to go off and sleep with as many men as possible and you'll receive your reward in heaven. And it is one of the most misogynistic films I've ever seen. So the story in this case follows two sisters, um, one of whom is played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, who was with Lars von Trier and Antichrist, yeah. the other one played by Kirsten Dunst, who many people will know from the Spider-Man series. And the latter, Kirsten Dunst, has just got married, and the film starts at the wedding reception in which everyone is fighting and everything's falling apart. Dunst suffers from a very acute form of depression and believes that you know, the world is godless and empty and evil and it's all going to uh, go uh, horribly wrong. Meanwhile, there is a blue planet out in space called Melancholia, which is moving very close to the Earth. Earth, and both of the sisters are rather concerned that it might actually hit us. Ooh. Yeah. So, Von Trier is, an, is a difficult filmmaker. You, in the same way as someone like, for example, I suppose like Abel Ferrara in America, you can't really take anything he says at face value, least of all his anti-Semitic remarks at can, because he is a prankster. He's somebody who gets a secret pleasure of sort of bursting the egos yeah. of the film industry. So, whether or not you like his films comes down to whether or not they hold together internally. And in the case of Melancholia, the answer is yes, but. Um, it's an interesting blend of drama and science fiction. The symbolism is quite marked, you know, the fact that the blue planet of melancholia represents the sort of the all-encompassing melancholy that Kirsten yeah. Dunst feels for the world. It's a film very much about depression, but also the sense of how, if you're depressed, you lead yourself to think that the whole world is depressed as well, and this sort of blanket of, you know, dreariness comes over mm. everything. So it's effectively about her drawing this planet towards yeah. the Earth in a bid to just end it all because she can't take her life anymore. I think the problem with the film is if you don't get in the zone with it, sort of getting into that haunting, very despondent feel, you're either going to spend a lot of your time thinking it's pretentious or you're just going to sort of feel a bit disappointed that the symbolism is quite so clear. And I think that will depend upon whether or not, for instance, you like The Tree of Life. Because if you thought Tree of Life was profound, you'll probably like Melancholia. But if you thought it was pretentious, you'll think, well, it's The Tree of Life light, only not light because it's depressing. <laughs> So, I like the idea. It's not easy to sit through for many reasons, but I think it's a better film. No, it's Lars von Trier back on form. It's not perfect, but Kirsten Dunst is really great. Right, so, film of the week, The Debts, Red State sounds good, Melancholia sounds good, and yes. then there's some turkeys to yeah. sum the week up. Yeah. Thanks very much. No we'll be back next Saturday between 10 and 11 with another edition of The Movie Hour. Well done to England. Finally winning. Finally winning. Let's hope it's better in the next round. Bye-bye. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.